Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. The following on podcast is proudly sponsored by Barbados Tourism. Before we kick off the show, I just wanted to take a moment to remind you that the ICC Men's Cricket T20 World Cup Final is taking place in Barbados this summer. This, by default, gives all of my fellow cricket fanatics the perfect excuse to go and book a holiday to Barbados in June and experience firsthand the euphoric atmosphere at the Kensington Oval the cricket mecca of the Caribbean. If the cricket alone isn't enough to tempt you, then let me be the one to remind you that a trip to Barbados can also include leisurely strolls along the breathtaking coastline, mouth-watering flavours of the world-class Bayesian cuisine, and, of course, plenty of rum. Head to visitbarbados.org forward slash cricket today to book the trip of a lifetime to Barbados, the best place to be a cricket fan. Hello and welcome to the following on podcast from TalkSport. I'm John Norman and today bringing you something a little bit different. Obviously the events surrounding the sad death of Shane Warne have have just shot cricket and really rocked the sport. I think on day one there was a lot of shock and uh, the reaction was from the heart. But 24 hours on, I suppose this is an attempt to... Look back at Shane's career and try and work out why it mattered quite as much to so many people in the way that it did. There's been thousands of words written and there's been a lot said from Shane's teammates, his opponents, from people he worked in the commentary box with. A lot of people have spoken and I suppose what myself and for this show... My good mate Jared Kimber are trying to do is trying to put together the different experiences that we had as two cricket lovers growing up in two different countries, trying to work out the similarities and the differences of our shared experience in terms of how we viewed Shane Warne's career during the 90s when we were both teenagers and uh, passionate supporters of the game and our teams um, up until now when we've actually shared those uh, moments with Shane either with interviews or in the commentary box or, or whatever. I'm not sure if we got there but we gave it a try and I record this after sitting down and chatting with Jared for the last hour and a half and I feel like finally I've worked out what it is about Shane Warne and what has happened and why it's happened and why it's made such an impact on on so many people. So I hope you enjoy this. It's essentially a collaboration between an Australian and an English cricket fan 
a collaboration between the following on podcast and Jared's Red Inca podcast. It'll be available here where you're listening and also over on Jared's YouTube channel. Um, and yeah, I hope you enjoy what we got together and uh, and spoke about. So without further ado, here's uh, me and Jared Kimber on Shane Warne. What is your first memory of Shane Warne? So my first memory of Shane Warne was, he. so obviously he's Victorian and from mm. Melbourne and he got picked for the Sydney test. But the really strong thing that I remember was that everyone kept going on about the sound of his deliveries. And I remember, I reckon someone must have said it on TV or on the radio and I heard or maybe it was written down. And then my old man kept going on about it. And it didn't make any sense to me because I was like, what are they talking about? The sound of his deliveries, right? Like what a weird thing to say. And, you know, I played, you know, I was, what, 11 or 12. Like, I'd played cricket and I'd been around senior cricket and I couldn't understand. And then later, you know, when people kept going on about it, I realized what they were saying is that he put so many revs on the ball that you could hear the revolutions on the ball. Wow. And I was like, what does that mean? And, and it was funny, Dan, Dan Bredig wrote a piece about that today. He talked about that particular thing. That was what we were all told. Because when you watched him the first couple of matches, especially, it was like... Why are we getting... Like, he wasn't athletic, right? Um, he bowled okay. He spun the ball a lot against India in that test match at the SCG. But Ravi Shastri destroyed him. Like, you you could imagine that would be someone's last test. Not just their first test, but their last test. Um, but the commentators just kept going on about how much purchase he was putting on the ball and the noise that you could hear through the air. Um, and that's that was the thing that carried us for, you know, what? He had one good test at the start of his career, which were in the first four tests, which was in Sri Lanka. It, I don't think it was broadcast in Australia. It was certainly, I, we didn't have uh, uh, cable TV, so we didn't see it. And all we heard was he took a bunch of wickets to help Australia win the game. But then when you look at it, he took like four wickets in the game. Three wickets were in the last five minutes when it was basically pitch black at the SSC. So no one's, ta- you know what I mean? Again, no one was talking him up. And it really wasn't until he came back at that, you know, the MCG match where everything changed against the West Indies. I'm assuming you you would have been just old enough to maybe have been following the the warm ups, but I'm assuming it was the actual gatting ball for you. So the gatting ball is one of those, mem- and I I don't think I saw the gatting ball live. In fact, I know I didn't see the gatting ball live. If I did, I can't remember it. It was probably when I was at school. That's the thing. Yeah, you know. Um, mm. so it's similar to 81 Headingley and I don't know whether my, I have real memory or whether it's just because I've seen so much since that's kind of implanted itself in my brain but do you know what it was only about it was probably only about two or three years ago I realised that the Gatting ball happened in exactly the same test match when I gave the game up so, I will never forget the Manchester test of 93 because it was the day that I, I basically had a strop. I flounced off. I just had enough. And see, this is, this is why I wanted us to talk about Shane Warne because, you know, we have great similarities. We both work in cricket. We live in the same part of London. I think morally, uh, in terms of we have, view the world very in a similar way, politically, we're very... 
we're both incredibly attractive people. You know, we've got very intelligent wives. We've got children. We're at a similar stage of our lives. We've known each other for a long, long time. 15, both. 12, 13 years both or something now. completely useless when we were younger. <laughs> both terrible, terrible. I mean, if, I mean, if Pete, you know, every time some new fresh-faced straight A media student comes through the doors at TalkSport, I look at them and I think, oh, my day. You know, I mean, that my life before I became uh, entered the world of the media is completely like I just don't talk about it to anyone apart from you basically <laughs> it's just something that I can't talk about I certainly wouldn't talk about on air but but where we're different is is our relationship with Australian cricket and English cricket for obvious reasons we grew up in similar kind of environment you know we've we've got very strong relationships with our parents you're an only child. I'm not. That's probably the biggest, probably the biggest difference between us. Maybe um, we both come from families of educators as well. Like, there's a lot of yes. ridiculous similarities there. Yeah, there's there's a lot there. And so I was just thinking, you know, I was just. And the other thing is, we were together yesterday in the morning, weren't we, for two hours around yeah. your house? And I left your house, and and I had to get to the office, and um, and then the news broke, and you know, I went into. I I know it sound it might sound crass to make this comparison, but I'm going to do it. And if you bear with me, you'll understand what the point I'm making. But in 2005, um, the London bombings happened, right? And I was working at Talksport then, and uh, I remember waking up and I was seeing, I was watching the TV, and there was this this report on the news about electric electrical outages that caused these explosions. And it was all very odd. And then suddenly it became apparent that they weren't electrical outages, they were bombs. So anyway, I, you know, I had, I just had this, I had to get into the office. So I, I had seen my mate the other, the night before. And like, so basically, obviously you couldn't get in from South London to where we were in Waterloo. So I'd seen my mate the night before and I, he has a bike. So basically I went around his house, borrowed his push bike, cycled into work and I cycled from Streatham Streatham to um to Waterloo and I was cycling in and all you it was so it was one of the most surreal days of my life and one of the most tragic days of course so many people died but you know there was nobody on public transport the roads were deserted and everyone was walking on pavements away from the city and I was cycling in anyway I get into the office and my boss at the time um uh, old Fleet Street you know one of the old school uh, Bill Ridley, he looked at me and he realised I had a bike and he just sent me out. He sent me out to Russell Square, uh, the scene of the um, the bombings, via the bus that had been blown up. And I reported on, on air all day on Talk Sport from the scene as the emergency services were going in and blah, blah, blah. Then the shift came to an end. I mean, I, I was there from, say, 10am through to 7pm, 8pm, right? And I was... And then I, you know, that was it. They, they say, time to go home. You, you, you head off. Well done, blah, blah, blah. And then I remember I cycled back to Waterloo or something. The trains were running by that point. And I got on the train and I looked at a newspaper and it was a front page of the Evening Standard. And there was a picture of the bus that had been blown up. Hmm. And it just hit me. And I realised what had happened that day. So from the moment that I had found out the news, I'd kind of gone into work mode. 
Mm. I'd been a professional. I'd had to go and report on what was happening. And then I got on the tube as a, as a passenger, as a, as a commuter. And looking at that front page, it just made me realise in a way that I hadn't comprehended at any point that day the enormity of what had occurred. And a similar thing happened to me yesterday. So I left your house. I came back to here, where I'm broadcasting now, to my house, made a cup of tea, had some, had some food, jumped on the train. And then I'm on the train to London Bridge. It's a 10-minute journey. And I get a call. And, and Shane Warne's dead. Hi, John. It's, it's, I can't even remember. I cannot even remember who it was who called. Hi, it's Shane Warne's Shane Warne, have you heard the news about Shane Warne? I was like, oh, what's it, you know. I, I, my immediate impre- thought was probably the same as everybody's. It was like, oh, God, what's he done now? <laughs> and then it was like, he's dead. And I just clicked straight into, I mean, I couldn't believe it, first off. And the, anybody around me, I remember there was a woman sitting across from me and she was looking at me. She could only hear one side of the conversation. And then I immediately... Um, I text Nico because I thought if anyone knows, he knows. And I yeah. text, I text him. I said, "Nico, are you here?" Because I was, I, he was flying back from South Africa, Mark Nicholas. And I said, and he just got back to me straight away, and he said, "No, I'm here." And I just called him, and I said, "Is it true?" And he said, "Yeah." And and I was like, you know, and at that point, actually, I was a human being because I hits his mate, right. Mm. It's it's his mate, and he looks up to Shane. Looked up to Shane, didn't he? He loves Shane. Um, and I said to him, "Look, I don't know if you're in any state, but can you come on air?" And he said he would. And and he was prob. I imagine he was probably the first person to speak about it on air. I imagine. I can't. I can't see anybody else because a lot of people were waiting for confirmation yeah. from his agent or from whatever. But I knew if Mark knew, it was true, and it was. We could go with it. I mean, it's probably we shouldn't have, but we did. And I, you know, whatever. Anyway, I'm I'm literally five minutes from work. I get in and then it's all going off. If you've ever been in a live radio or TV situation when something happens like this, some very selfish way, it's the reason you do the job, to be honest. And everyone's in the control room and everyone's a bit surprised. It's like, you know, Shane Warne's just died and then, People haven't seen me for three and a half months because I've been in New Zealand because of, you know, you know. And then suddenly I just bowl in, I bowl in and I'm like, get this person and do this. And we're calling and blah, blah, blah. So for the next two hours, I'm on Times Radio, I'm on Talk Radio, I'm sorting out guests, I'm doing everything, you know, being part of the, 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 the uni mind of just trying to deal with this breaking story, which is just on a magnitude of, you know, it's up there with, you know, it's up there with... Wow, you know. And then um, my boss says, we want you on from four. We want you on from four for a, for the whole show. And I was like, look, I, I can't because my wife's in New Zealand. He knew knew this and I, and I couldn't have any, nobody could look after my son after six. And as luck would have it, somebody was picking up from school. Anyway, so I'm dashing around for two hours and then suddenly I'm in the studio and... The mics go up and the the host, Andy Goldstein, just starts speaking. And he starts saying, Shane Warne's died. 
and and for the first time I'm sitting there and I'm thinking you know I'm thinking I know that he's going to ask me what you know what it means mm. and it's the first time I really thought about it I just cleared my mind and I just thought to myself what does it mean why am I so incredibly profoundly shocked by this news and it's not just because he's so young and because you know it's such a surprise I mean of course mm. that is part of it but it was the first time I just stopped being a professional journalist and just became a, the person that I am. And I spoke and, you know, greater people than I, people who know Shane, knew Shane. I mean, we didn't know Shane. We went out for... In fact, we were together when we... We were together, weren't we, when Shane Wall bought us both a drink. And we were... Look, let's be honest. We were both... Trying to be cool, but you know, that's a big deal. We're sitting there with Shane Warne and it's late at night and he's having a ciggy and he's, you, you know, you boys want a drink? And we're like, yeah, yeah, I'll get a drink off you, Shane. And it's like, that's, that's cool. But was, um, that, was that in Birmingham? I think it was either Birmingham or Leeds. I, can, I, can, yeah. I think it was Birmingham, yeah. It was Mal Maison, wasn't it? It's was outside. And we worked out, it was like, it was like 11.30 at night and there was Warney. Tufnell and um, Graham Swan. And it's like, and we were like, man, this is such a stereotype about spinners, isn't it? It's always <laughs> spinners that are out drinking and smoking till stupid o'clock. Anyway, I'm di- I've digressed way from the, the, the question that you actually asked me. But, um, but it got me thinking about this morning, I was on the way to the football, took my son, and this is the thing, I took my son to his first Fulham game today. And, you know, yesterday, and I can't quite work it out, I can't quite work out how to describe it, but it's like, you know, yesterday, it was the end of, it was the end of a relationship I have with mm. cricket that goes all the way back to 1993. But today was the start of a relationship my son is going to have with Fulham, that's going to go all mm. the way to, I mean, he may decide not to really get into it, but it just seems symbolic, really. And then it just made me think, I just thought, I just thought of me and you, really. I just thought, why don't we just sit down and just chat about Shane Warne and just see where, we, where it ends up. And, and yeah, and so to go back all the way, I've just been chatting for 10 minutes straight. I, I don't remember the ball of the century. I didn't, I'm pretty, I'm 99% sure I didn't see it at the time. Um. And that's why it's interesting. It's really interesting because my relationship with Shane Warren is so strong, but it's the complete opposite of yours. Mm. Because, like, you're wearing a Surrey cap, aren't you, right now? I am wearing a Surrey cap. So, like, I should be wearing a Victoria cap, really, shouldn't I? <laughs> but that's the thing. So, you said your first memory of Shane Warren was, was then, but you, did you not play for Victoria? I mean, was it that not something? He played for Victoria... Um... But he didn't take any wickets, and he only played three or four games. Really? Um, yeah, so I'd I have to go back that. and check the numbers. But I don't think he... I think he played a... T- I'm trying to think if he played a two-a game. There wasn't really that much hype. There was kind of hype about the fact that... Um, so that period, Dan- uh, Darren Lehman had defected from South Australia to Victoria. That was a huge story in Victorian cricket. Uh, Dean Jones was 
the number one ODI batter in the world, um, had missed out on the World Cup at home um, after that. That was a huge story uh, mm. revolving around the team. And then there was sort of, there was always rumours that like, you know, Damien Fleming and um, Paul Rifle and Tony Dottermade and Merv Hughes like were forming this great group of bowlers coming through. But Warren didn't really do much when he played for Victoria. So there wasn't any real reason at that point to get massively excited by him. So even if he played for Victoria, see, I, I didn't, don't I think, just did not know yeah. that. I, yeah, I don't think it was a big deal. I'd have to check the numbers to, to, to go back on it, but put it this way, me and Bryden Coverdale do play a game. I don't know if you've ever been around when we've done this before. You're probably too busy working when we're in the middle of the day and we get a bit bored. We play a game where we pick a Victorian player who has played probably less than 30 games and we have to come up with their exact batting or bowling average. And it's all basically guys are about 86 to 2004, right? And we'd done it a couple of times, I think, before other people started noticing we were doing this stupid game. And everyone's like, but they were also shocked at how accurate we were. So for me, for me to have missed Warren and know who Jared Dowling is, who played two first-class games for Victoria, <laughs> kind of tells you that he wasn't massively on, on... He wasn't a massive name. I know within district cricket, um, he was. I think people had already started talking about him in district cricket of this guy spinning the ball sideways. Like, how on earth do you play him? But in Victorian uh, you know, uh, cricket at that point... He hadn't really taken off. And even until he really takes the seven up against the West Indies. So that's in um, uh, December of 92, Boxing Day 92. Until he takes that seven-wicket haul, like, there's still a lot of talk about this other leg spinner in, Australia, in Victoria called Craig Howard, who's coming through at the same time. It's not, you know what I mean? He hadn't even really separated I, himself I, I from didn't, that I other I did player. not know that. The only thing that we used to hear about Warney, and it was always a kind of like... Um, fed into the mystique about Australians and the fact that they're, you know, not quite tall poppy syndrome, but they certainly, you know, a player, a, a big player, name player coming back to play in shield cricket, they would absolutely destroy them, you know, as much as possible. And, you know, it was always that, oh, whenever Shane Warne played in shield cricket, the all the Australian batsmen he bowled to were just hell-bent on just, you know, battering him as much as humanly possible. But I didn't realise that his escalation to... To the international scene was quite so so quick, really. Um, so I just I just got it up now on on, on cricket archive. So he played. Uh, I was right actually. So he played Australia. I thought he played for Victoria versus a touring team, but he didn't. He played for Australia B. So he played one Shield game. His see, that's next crazy. Game was, yeah, what, his next game was for Australia B. He played against. Uh, he, he went on that tour of Zimbabwe, uh, which was quite an important. Um, tour at that stage I think he would have played for Victoria Moore had he not been thrown out of the academy by the way he also came back from England one year massively overweight so there were and, and you've got to remember that that period of especially Victorian cricket but also in general they were very much getting very professional and it was very Aussie rules dominated to have a guy come back unfit was not uh, ideal yeah so he played he played he played two games in Zimbabwe and then he played three games for Victoria and his next game was for an Australian eleven. And the game after that was the test match, right? And that was it. So very much like David Warner, he just came almost straight in. The difference is that David Warner was a bit older and had made some white ball uh, runs at that point, whereas Warner just came straight in. So there, I'm just trying to have a look. His first game was in St Kilda. Uh, there's no way my dad would have taken me to St Kilda. That's the other end of the world from where I live. 
Um, and the next two games he played for Victoria were in November. So I would have been at school. So I wouldn't have been able to go and, and probably watch those either. So there was, there was certainly, when he got picked, there was a lot of hype, right? That, that's the natural thing, you know, your, your local boy is, is picked. And Victoria was really parochial in that particular era because we thought that Dean Jones was mm. being ripped off. Mate, you and um, Collos are still pissed off about that, like a <laughs> yeah. quarter of a century later. <laughs> exactly. But I think, I, I'm trying to think about the dates. I think that's almost exactly when... That was like the year after Mark Waugh had taken over from Dean Jones in the test team and also the period just after Dean Jones was left out of the World Cup, which is, which was a ridiculous thing to have, you know, your best ODI batter not in that particular team. Uh, but the test team, I think Mark Waugh was probably um, more useful to Australia than, than, than Dean Jones would have been, although that is a hugely divergent point. But, but essentially, so he then, he then played there. So there wasn't, there wasn't any build-up. So I'm trying to think, if you think about, there were some Australian players in that era that were really, really built up before they played. Mark Wall was obviously one. Mark Taylor was another one. Um, I'm trying to think if there was any of the Victorian guys coming through. Some probably a couple of years later, you know, guys like Brad Hodge and Matthew Elliott uh, that came through Victoria that were really, really built up. Um, a Paul Rifle maybe a little bit as well. There, there was a, lot, a little bit of hype about, about him. Warren just sort of appeared, right? And then when you look at him, it's not like you're looking at a great athlete, like at that point, right? And yeah. the other thing is, I'm going to, here's my question for you. I want yeah. to know your Australian cricket history. Who were the leg spinners before Warren? Do you remember any? No, I don't. So really? one became chairman of selectors, so I thought you might know him. No, because I was, I was actually going to look into this because this is one of the things that I said on TalkSport. You know, it's now we kind of see leg spin as, you know, an integral part of of cricket, especially within Australian cricket. Mm-hmm. Um, but that that's just completely not the case, is it? I mean, even, we've spoken many times about how you, it wasn't, I mean, you're a leg spinner yourself, or you were before you mullered your arm. <laughs> but, you know, it wasn't even Shane Warne that got you into that, was it? I mean, it's like, no. it's, it's, he just basically... He brought back an, a, a dead art, essentially. Yeah. If, if so, so there's so Trevor Holmes was the chairman of selectors. He he was a leg spinner. You might remember Bob Holland, who played when he was like yeah. eighty three years old. Like he's famous for being one of the older players in modern post war cricket, anyway, uh, to make his debut. I think that's right. I, th- I think I've got my Bob Holland fact right. The other one was a guy who's he's, he's got he's the most fascinating. Um, cricket trivia question if you ever want to really stump someone two Australian cricketers played in the 70s 80s and 90s one's Alan Border and the other one's this leg spinner who no one ever remembers no Peter Sleep right those are the three guys I'm I'm sure I'm, I'm sure there was oh so much so that in eighteen in the eighty nine Ashes, I don't know if you remember this. It was a big it was a big plot point in Australia, but I don't know if it really made it into the UK press. But uh, Australia wanted to use a leg spinner, um, and they were thinking about not picking. Uh, I think Trevor Holmes was on that tour. Um, but they were thinking about not using Trevor Holmes and actually using Tim Zura, who was the backup wicketkeeper. Uh, because he bowled some really good... Le- he, he actually bowled a little bit like Warren. He ragged it sideways, and they were thinking about using him. So that sort of tells you how far they were from any sort of major leg spinners. And, and the other thing is that if you look back, like I'm talking about the uh, the 80s, really, right? The period yeah, just before yeah. Warren. But I had a look at it today. It's like 
So Kerry O'Keefe played 23 or 24 test matches, I think. How many wickets do you think Kerry O'Keefe got in those test matches? Well, I looked at Kerry O'Keefe's test record not that long ago, actually. <laughs> so I, um, this is a problem. I always look at these things and then I completely forget them. Um, he played 24 tests. Yeah, I think so. Roughly around there, yeah. 30. Yeah, I mean, slightly better than that. He got 50. So he took about two wickets a test. So yeah. he was essentially... Him and Terry Jenner were the only sort of close to frontline wrist spinners. Neither of them did very well. Um, and that's what's another thing, to go back to the Gatting ball, that I found so amazing when I was thinking about it. The last time that leg spin was a big deal in the ashes between Australia and England was when Richie Benno was bowling. Yeah. Right? It's that long ago that I'm, I'm not saying that they weren't the odd good spells, you know, and, and, you know, Kerry had some good moments and, you know, there was certainly, Terry Jenner almost got killed, didn't he, by Jon Snow at the SCG. They certainly had their moments within games and, you know, there was, uh, I'm, you know, I'm trying to think if there were any, um, anyone after Richie Benno that played for England. I, there probably wasn't, actually. But it just wasn't a thing at all. And then Terry Jenner, you know Terry Jenner's backstory, right? Well, the, the imprisoned bit. The, yeah, like yeah, he yeah. comes out of jail mm. for embezzlement. So some f- form of fraud comes out of jail and gets paired up with Warren. Yeah. It's a really remarkable story when you think about it. And, um, and then at the same time, Bob Simpson is the Australian coach. Bob Simpson was... Uh, what would you call Bob Simpson? Bob Simpson was almost like a Michael Bevan uh, or Simon Kadich type leg spinner. Do you know what I mean? Or wrist spinner. In that... Um, he was like the backup and he was obviously in the side to bat and then occasionally he you know he he would bowl he he was he was decent but he wasn't front line or anything and suddenly Shane Warne has these two incredible influences in his life this this guy who screwed up his own life yeah. uh, and this other guy who you know Bob Simpson really is he's the first modern cricket coach he's the one that everyone copies right like everyone after Every, every team after uh, Australia wanted their own version of Bob Simpson. For those two things to fall into place, considering that there was no one else around, like it would have been very easy for Shane Warne to have no mentors, right? It's if, true. If they, if they didn't have Bob Simpson and they, they went, well, we're not going to let him hang around with Terry Jenner because Terry Jenner has just gone to jail, um, which are both reasonable and normal things that could have happened in that era. Shane Warne probably isn't Shane Warne. Not to say he wouldn't have spun the ball the same amount. But he wouldn't have had, he wouldn't have had the control. He wouldn't have had the flipper. Um, I, I don't think he would have been that clever a bowler or that skillful a bowler at that stage. And, and in fact, in Dan Bredig's piece I was talking about before, he talks about the fact that one reason that and I don't know if Warren's ever said this, but other people have said this is that they think that his shoulder and his finger got sore. Is once Bob Simpson wasn't around, he basically relied on his arm and his finger. And when you're putting that many revs on the ball, you need to actually share the the wealth and what what uh, Bob Simpson was doing was saying, push through. The more energy you have through the crease, you'll do. And that was the thing that, when I grew up, did all the other leg spinners. I knew heaps of guys who could spin the ball as much as Warren, but their arms always fell apart or their fingers fell apart because they didn't have the energy through the crease or the strength that he had to be able to keep doing it. And that even affected Warren because, you know, he ended up bowling 50,000 um, balls in, you know, in top-level cricket, not to mention uh, you know, Victoria and Hampshire, although I'm pretty sure he ended up with more wickets for Hampshire than Victoria, which really, well, see, really bothers me. So that's, that's the thing. So was he always Australia's Shane Warnan? Because you know, when, when we used to hear him on comms, even now, you know, <laughs> I was listening to his <laughs> Wednesday, 
During the last Ashes, and it was announced that the fifth test was going to be going to uh, to mm. Hobart, and he was on air at the time, and he was just spitting. He was like, he was like, well, you know, how big's that? So what's that? Twelve thousand a day, and he was like, just full on about Melbourne. He was always going. I remember him ribbing um, when uh, <laughs> when um, Brisbane was announced as the host of the Cobblewood Games, and. Who was it? He was on air. Who would have been on air with him? Who was from Queen? Mo- no, where was Mo- Healy Taylor? or someone? Maybe as Ian Healy, and he was just killing him. He was just like, "Whoa, wow, Commonwealth Games going to Brisbane." <laughs> Whoa. So, like, in the face of it, he was always big up Melbourne, you know, big mm. up Victoria. But did you see? You know, my love of Alex Stewart, and this is another thing where we're completely different when it comes to Shane Warne, but. You know, Stuart was Surrey through and through. Hmm. He was my favourite player because he was from. He played for Surrey, and he also had a, an attacking mindset, and he was he was fantastic to watch. But you know, was Shane Warne was Shane Warne like the Michael Owen? You may not uh, uh, understand the reference, but Michael Owen played Michael Owen played for Liverpool, right? He played alongside hmm. a guy called Robbie Fowler. Robbie Fowler was was called God. You know, for three seasons, he was the most. You know, he was the best striker in the world. And then he got injured, yada, yada. But Liverpool fans never quite warmed to Michael Owen in the same way they did Robbie Fowler. Robbie Fowler never played for England half as much as Michael Owen. Michael Owen was a superstar. Was Shane Warne... So, and then Michael Owen went on to play World Cups for England, and that's really where he made his name. Then he went to Real Madrid and yada, yada. And then he had a, went to Manchester United, which went down really well with Liverpool fans. But essentially, you know, what was Shane Warne seen as a Victorian by Victoria fans? Did that happen? So, you've got to remember that you're comparing this to football and, and county cricket, which mm. both have actual crowds. Uh, you know, we, we always joke that, you know, the sort of the bunch of us who now all work in cricket, you know, me, Ross, Rusty, Rusty Jackson, um, uh, you know, Bryden Coverdale, um, all the, Adam White, all of us who sort of came up, you know, uh, through uh, Victoria that... There must have been a time when we were the only four people in the ground watching Victoria play. It was, I mean, it's but, incredible. But county watch. cricket has that image. No. But for you, are you like well, actually no? County cricket is quite well attended. County cricket has a crowd compared to the MCG, right? For 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 a Shield game, you, you can get people into the MCG. I saw some great Shield finals there, and some you know decent one day games. And when they used to play the T Twenty there, they had huge crowds before it even went to the the Big Bash League. But you know, I've been in the MCG when I felt like I'm the only one there for a Shield game um, multiple times. Uh, I've, ca- you know, we used to count the crowd sometimes, you know, to see if, if it was over 100. Wow. Uh, in, and then in the MCG, you can imagine how that feels. Like, it's so weird. It does allow you to sleep. Well, it's so, one per stand. So much better. Yeah. <laughs> so there wasn't that big, but there's certainly... So on when, when I started my blog, Cricket With Balls, I used to refer to him as Hampshire's Shane Moore. <laughs> because, for two reasons. One... He did play a lot more for Hampshire than he did for Victoria. Oh. And two, when he played for Victoria, he never, ever bowled well. And this is really weird that no one, no one, I'm the only person in the world fascinated with this. But I promise you, so when I said he took more wickets for Hampshire before, I've just looked it up. He did take more wickets for Hampshire. But hilariously, uh, it's not that, 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 that really great. He had a bowling average of 25 for Hampshire. He had a bowling average of 34 for Victoria. <laughs> <laughs> right and so many times he'd come back and he you could tell he was just going through the motions yeah. uh, you know and it would as a Victorian fan it was 
absolutely frustrating. But no one else in Melbourne felt that way other than, you know, maybe me, Bryden, you know, Rusty. There was no one there, right? There's a handful of, like, Victorian fans that, that I sort of, you know, would sort of recognise and we'd nod at each other. And that's it. There was no one at these grounds. And so that's I don't brilliant. think other people had that. I think the really interesting thing with Shane Warne is that he... You've got, to, you've got to understand how much Australia changed in the 90s. We literally went from Bob Hawke downing beers to Paul Keating speaking Latin, right? In a mm. very, very short space of time. And Australia went from, you know, living off the sheep's back to being, as, as you would know, you spent a lot of time out there, an incredibly middle-class country. Australians mm. don't even understand this, but it's like, you know... It, it went really, really middle class all the way through from the inner city to the suburbs, even if there was still that sort of Australian feeling there, right? Shane Warne is very much old school Australia, mm. right? He's not particularly refined. He likes toasted sandwiches and he likes baked beans and, and, and uh, um, you know, and pizza. He doesn't eat lots of different foods. He's not, a, you know, his favorite, he listens to do more commentary, all his favorite movies were like, you know, the DVDs you could get for five for five bucks in Kmart, yeah. right? It was like, you know, a bunch of Will Ferrell movies, maybe some Adam Sandler. Uh, he talked about Stifler more than, no one had talked no one talked about American Pie more. They made nine <laughs> American Pie films, didn't they? And only Shane Morn probably was watching to the end. He probably was the person watching to the end, right? You know, and and so he was, you know, that sort of very basic sort of guy. But Australia's changing, right? And there's this big cultural cringe about him smoking, you know, about... You know, well, not him smoking, but the whole advertising, you know, him advertising that he was going to give up the smokes and then getting caught smoking. There was the affairs. There was the, like, getting caught in his underwear. There was, you know, oh, um, I, I, took, um, I took those pills because um, I was trying to slim down, you know, from... Oh, he took money off the bookie. Everything was like this big cultural cringe. He was like... He was essentially a character out of Neighbours, right? Who no one in Australia watched Neighbours. As you know, it's only famous in in the UK. Literally, Neighbours has just shut down because they couldn't find a UK distributor and no one has left watching it in Australia over the last 25 years, right? I went went on the Neighbours tour. Did you? I wish I had The people who write Neighbours up until very recently, I'm not sure they were all still there at the end, but they're all huge cricket fans. And and one of them I used to work with years ago, lovely guy. (laughs) He was one of my early writing uh, uh, um, mentors, a guy called Rene. Um, and so he was well, basically played, like... They played cricket in the credits back in the day, didn't they? They, they were did, playing yeah. cricket on the street. And so you, he, Warren was like that, right? Yeah. And that was not the Australia that, that was, it was becoming, right? You, you had like Warren and Dougie Bollinger. The real the person <laughs> who was much more like representative of Australia is Michael Clarke. At that point, who Australians hated, yeah. right? They loved. There was there was a whole crowd. No one loved Michael Clark ever. No. Almost until he started making triple centuries, no one liked him at all. Whereas Shane Warne was loved and hated, really, really equally. But there was certainly a cringe of you know, like I remember when the Shane Warne the musical was made. Yeah, and it was like, and it made fun of him so much, and there was just so I just there was a lot of rolling the eyes. I think of people uh, with when it came to Shane Warne. Um, and, and so I, I think that was the bigger, that was the more interesting thing for me that, I mean, he would have to have been close to the most famous Australian in the world at that point. I'm trying to think of 
Greg Norman's on the wane, right? Uh, is, yeah. it's, Russell Crowe's New Zealander, but I suppose Russell Crowe's in that kind of period as well. Uh, Nicole Kidman, obviously, yeah, uh, Nicole and he's coming Kidman, through. Yeah. Luke Longley's playing for the Chicago Bulls. Like, there's famous Australians in in multiple different fields at that point. You know, Natalie Imbruglia had a big single, and Kylie Minogue, obviously. But Shane Warne's almost like Dame the Edna. most famous person, right? And then you got to have Dame Edna in there. I think Dame Edna by the 90s is pretty much over, mate. You're the only one hanging on to Dame Edna in the 90s. Dame Edna's a 1980s. Dame Edna and Rolf Harris had the 80s. I don't think they had the 90s. I think they were going by then. Uh, what was it? But, but I think worldwide, and I think there was like, I think there was a lot of people who were like, oh, could it not be Steve Waugh? Do you know what I mean? Could it, could it not be someone a little bit more, you know, of, of the times? Um, and Steve Waugh's, you know, uh, his own sort of issue. But I, I think that was the only thing that I remember. You know, people sort of going, oh, Warney's at it. There was always that feeling of Warney's yeah. at it again. Do you know what I mean? A Warney's stuffed up again. Oh, what's he done this time? Yeah. Um, well, we, we got did... that. We got that in England. Yeah. That, and that was my reaction when someone could, have you heard about Warn? I was like, oh, what's he done now? <laughs> yeah, but you say that in England. That's how you see Australians, right? Uh, here's my perfect story of, of Warren in England, right? This very posh friend of mine who, um, who you'd be shocked, a posh person working in cricket, who <laughs> we were out one day and he said to me, oh, he goes, I think Warren's actually a really intelligent guy. And if he went to the, the kind of schools that I went to, he'd be much more refined or whatever. And I was like, he went to one of the best schools in Melbourne, right? He got a scholarship for football and cricket because he was, he was probably even better a footballer when he was quite young. Yeah. I'm like... This isn't a this isn't a matter of he went to the wrong kind of school. This is who Shane Warne was. This is who Shane Warne was. If Shane Warne went to Eton, he would have been like this. And he was that, incapable of change his whole and, life, which you have to respect. But, but that's why we liked him. Yeah, because he wore his. Even like you know, you mentioned all of those terrible things he did. He always owned them, like that. That you see, I'm sure you saw it. The Matt Hancock thing, you know, the uh, former health secretary. He was having an affair, it was caught on camera and, you know, he was basically in flagrant breach of his own lockdown rules and he gets fired. Anyway, so he comes out, you know, he's trying to basically do the old PR thing, you know, trying to get back, get his political career back. He's, he's got like a polo neck jumper on, some jeans. He's doing a really soft focus, overly produced podcast. Um, and he's, you know, he's trying to weasel his way around Yes, he's sorry, but he's not quite that sorry, and all that kind of stuff. And and Shane Warne has always been, and always was, was just this kind of guy. Who was like, yeah, I did it. Yeah, but that's even, it. I that, did it again. You're right. And I've done even it then, again. If you think about it, they hid the match fixing bit, not match fixing, but well, payments for yeah. fixing, whatever you want to call it. They hid that, right? And we could say whatever we want. If this was a Russian runner. And they said that they were taking this drug, uh, or maybe a shot putter or someone. They were taking this drug to um, uh, to lose a little bit of weight before a camera shoot. We'd be like, no, they're 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 a drugs cheat. He's not even referred to as a drugs cheat, even yeah, as he yeah. said that. And look, he could be. We have no idea, right? But that's the two most other than getting called for chucking. He almost had crickets try, you know, um, hat trick of the worst possible things you could do in the sport. Right? Like literally, yeah. he was right there at the top. And yet, I think you're right. Like he, you know, he would get. He, he was quite thin-skinned as well. Weirdly, yeah, yeah, but, yeah. But he, he was, was also, he was, he was he, really thin-skinned. Yeah, but then at the but, same time, really like kind of 
accept he ne- just never accepting. changed I think you're right that, there was changed. that kind of accepting thing it, it's funny do you remember that period so the first time I spent a lot of time with him so the only time well I socialised with him a couple of times the only time he ever bought me a drink was with you but mm. I've been out a couple of times but the first time I really spent a lot of time with him was we had, he had this big interview with ESPN uh, and it was I think it was might have been me and Dan Bredick again or my, me and George I can't remember who, who was working for us at the time but we went down and he turned up at Lord's and he parked under the press um, centre. There wasn't a game day, but he literally just drove into the, the centre of Lord's. I'd never seen anyone <laughs> do that unless they were like dropping off alcohol or food. Or, do you know what I mean? Like who parks under the press thing unless you're the groundsman? Right? Yeah. It was such a random thing to do. Anyway, he does it. And of course, it's him in, on driving and Liz Hurley's with him. Right? And he gets out the car and he's got this, you know, nice shirt on. Um, and, and, but underneath it, he had tracksuit pants on, right? Trackadacks, as we, as he would have called them and I would have called them growing up, right? And you're just like, why bother to put the shirt on and not just put a decent pair of slacks on? And then we walk, we had to walk in, we had, uh, Lords were only letting us record in, you know, certain places. And we, and we, we chose, um, up at the, up the top of the, um, of one of the stands, um, uh, and, Walking up the stairs, he was moaning about the, the, how big the stairs were. And it was also on Brad. But also, this was probably when he, at the point when his face had ch- started to change shape. Yeah, uh, yeah. When his teeth were whiter than any yeah. uh, a- any shade ever. He had the orange face at that point, the Donald Trump face. And also, if you saw him, from, do you remember? You'd see him in the press box and his face from the front looked nothing like his face from the side. Like he yeah. actually had a mask put on. And the whole thing was just hilarious. Like, he's parked where he wants to. Liz Hurley's there. He's got tracky jacks on, but with a nice shirt. He's moaning about having to walk upstairs. And he's a professional, former professional athlete. And this is about five or ten years ago when he was with Liz Hurley. He hadn't even retired from Rajasthan or Melbourne Stars that long before. He's still complaining. Um, he's got that whatever's going on with his face. But you put the camera on. And, you know, the first few questions were more about his career. And he's a bit bored. And then he start, we started asking, because it was me and Bredig, we both grew up as leg spinners in his era, right? And we're like, leg spin question, nerd leg spin question, nerd leg spin question. And suddenly he was like, oh, this is great. No one ever asked me about this sort of stuff. And he was like an absolute kid. And it was, it was one of the most Shane Warne experiences that you could have because everything came up, you know, from him being a little bit lazy to him being obsessed with his own looks, Liz Hurley, him being so, you know, oblivious to the world around that he would just park his car under the, the, the it was it was a very very shame or moment and it was um i don't know how long we spent with him maybe you know 45 minutes or an hour and then afterwards he was like asking us uh, you know questions uh, you know and every and it was it he was a very, i remember I, I was on um talk sport with with harmy and harmy was talking about what a sort of a genuine person he was like mm. there was so little acting which is what got him in yeah. trouble a lot of the time, as you were talking about yeah. before. But he really was that sort of person. Like you listen to him commentate, and let's be honest, ninety-eight percent of the time he was a horrible commentator, right? But when he found something that he was really cared about, he was actually quite good. Like yeah. you know, whether it might be leg spin or it might be something about captaincy or whatever, he could be really good because again, you've tapped into that thing that he cares about, and he and he goes off. Um, and uh, you know that. Eh, he wasn't good at acting, 
which is weird because he, you know, had a decent poker career, but he wasn't good at acting. He was good at being really, really quite open and honest. And, um, you know, and I, I think that there was certainly a big part of that was what got him in trouble, but it was also what got him out of trouble. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. The following on podcast is proudly sponsored by Barbados Tourism. If your passion for travel is on par with your passion for cricket, then I have some excellent news. The ICC Men's Cricket T20 World Cup Final is being hosted in Barbados this June, which makes it the perfect destination for your summer holidays this year. To make the most of your trip, you can also experience eight matches from the series in Barbados, including... England against Scotland and England against Australia. In under a month's time, you could be spending your days exploring the vibrant streets of Bridgetown, drinking rum in the sunshine and experiencing exotic Bayesian delicacies in the culinary capital of the Caribbean. There truly is something for everyone. There's no need to wait a second longer. Head to visitbarbados.org forward slash cricket today to book the trip of a lifetime to Barbados, truly the best place to be a cricket fan. What? So what about watching him then? Because for English fans, or English cricket, well, for me, okay, let's just talk about me, because, you know, it was a tor- it was torturous. You know, so my favourite cricketer, as you know, is Alex Stewart. And, like, you could see Stewart, when he used to play against Australia when Warren was playing, he literally... He was trying to score as many runs as quickly as possible before Steve Waugh went, all right, we've had enough of this. Shane Waugh's coming on. And, and I'd be watching and I'd be like, I, I was fixated on Stewart having a batting average of 40, right? That was like, that's all I, that's all I cared about. As soon as he got past 40, like literally, I would be like that watching him and then he'd go past 40 and I'd just start to relax. And with Warm, when came Australia, get him up the order, open the batting, just... Basically, hit the ball as hard as you can, cover drive, pull shot, you know, go for it, go for it, go for it. And then as soon as Warren came on, I'd be like, well, he's got 33, he's not going to get 40. And, <laughs> and he wouldn't, and, he, and he'd be out. And the thing with watching Warren and Australia at that time was, it was, because I was still a teenager. So now I think sometimes, I think we lose sight as commentators and as journalists, we lose sight big time about what it is to support a team when you're a kid. And that is when you fall in love with sport. When you're a kid, all you care about is your team winning. Nothing else. 
right? If you're England are playing Bangladesh, that is an opportunity to destroy Bangladesh at home, this is. And, you know, for Stuart to score 200 and for England to rack up 500. When you're a journalist, you're like, oh, come on, I hope, you know, I hope, you know, <laughs> I hope it's competitive. Mm. So watching England against Australia from essentially 1989 through to 2005, it was awful. And Shane Warne was the main, one of the main reasons for that because not only was he just like a superhuman, he put it, rubbed it in your face as well. And it was just, it made him, he just destroyed my favourite player every time. And it was just, it was just so bleak. Mm. But, I did, but I did have one out. And so go back to 92, right? That was the time that South Africa came out of apartheid. Mm. So I remember watching on the TV with my nan and my, with my grand and my dad, and, you know, Nelson Mandela with Winnie walking down that long walk to freedom and all that, you know, walking down. And, and anyway, so then um, South Africa are allowed to play sport again, yeah? South Africa... So, obviously, I could never, ever support Australia, ever, in anything, unless they play South Africa. And that was my only time. So, during World Cups, because we wouldn't get South Africa versus Australia. See, that was the other difference between us and me and you. You would watch Warren every single winter. Oh, sorry, every single summer, because he would be playing at home. But in England, we didn't have Sky. So, we only saw him on um, every four years essentially, unless there was a World Cup. Mm. And so Australia against South Africa was the only time I would allow myself to enjoy watching Shane Warne. And it was such a thrill. It was so good to just sit there and be able to just, instead of literally just like, literally be tormented by this bloke and all the other guys, I could actually just sit there and just be like, Ooh, okay, I could enjoy this stuff. And it was, well, that's it. It was quite, I'm just a bit envious. I couldn't do it. I couldn't do that once every four years. I wish I could do it. I wish I could have done it more. Yeah, I think, I think what it did was, obviously Australia were becoming a super team around that period as well. And he plays a big part in that. Although you look at the fastballs I had, they probably would have still dominated quite a bit even without him. Maybe not on every surface like the way they did. But, you know, so he he's coming through. It's obviously an improving team. But if you think about the bowlers just before then, so Bruce Reed was probably the one that everyone thought should have been great. And, you know, you watch Marco Janssen for South Africa now and you're just like, oh, that's what Bruce Reed would have been like if he bowled more than one test in a row. <laughs> um, uh, and And so... Then you had Craig McDermott, who again, he was the only fast bowler we'd had since Tomo, really, and he was out injured for years. Mm. You had Merv Hughes, who became really good, but kind of started as a bit of a running joke. You know, he was Merv Hughes is a bit like an Ishan Sharma figure in Australian cricket for a long time. Of like, uh, this well, is the best. This is the best we could do, right? But he's fun, so we'll we'll you know we, we'll laugh at him and with him, right? But. And and it, I suppose what who else would you had? You had guys like Jeff Lawson and Mike Whitney. Yeah, so you know Mike Whitney was a little bit fun, but you didn't really. Outside of the new ball, if Australia wasn't dominated with the new ball, there wasn't that much to like enjoy it. So I remember as a kid, we would watch 
the first 20 overs when we would bowl. <laughs> and then you'd go out and play, right? As Warren comes in, that's like one of the first changes of, oh, we should go out and play. Oh, but Warren's coming on. Mm. Well, let's just watch you for the first 10 overs. And then, you know, it's like, okay, well, like, then we'll go out for half an hour. Yeah, we'll go out, we'll go out at lunch and then we'll do... Do you know what I mean? Like, you had to, like... That's brilliant. So it completely changed. And then that... Well, that was what it was like. Every part of Warren, for me personally, was like this change in what we did. So whether it be playing cricket with my mates in the middle of the summer when we would now watch um, people uh, play a lot more. Then it was... When I grew up, my dad always used to go on a bang on about... He wanted to be square of the wicket. Square of the wicket. I want to see the pace and bounce. You know, he's a fast bowler. He wanted to see the pace and the bounce. You know, and my first test match was one of the few non-boxing day tests after 1980 um, at the MCG. Uh, I think it was in the middle of January, Australia played Pakistan. And we we sat square to the wicket. By the hat trick, so what's that, Boxing Day 1994? We were behind the behind the stumps from then on in, and we never moved again because that's, that's where you watch legs. So he from, right? he made you move. Yeah, and I, and I remember my dad just being absolutely captivated by him, and and that was it. Like we as a family, and after that, I noticed that even when I played cricket, and I don't know if it was because I was a leg spinner as well, but even when I played cricket, if my dad would watch when he wasn't coaching, you know, so after when I when I went went on and on to another club after I left uh, junior cricket. He would still sit in the same spot, right? Like, Warren had trained him where to go to have the best view, especially of leg spinners. I would say it's the best view everywhere. As you and I would know, you don't want to be square of the wicket if you want to actually be able to tell what's happening off the pitch. But not all cricket fans feel that way, and they're not all in it no. for the same reason, right? And aesthetically, also, also, sometimes like, square of the wicket's pretty. Yeah, and also, they're the cheap seats. So, like... Yeah, well, that did come just, into my family. You just have training. to go there, basically, yeah. didn't you? That's where... That's, that's, that's just how it is. But, so yeah, you've no. got, So, you've got... It, it, what, it changed how me and my friends would spend our summers. It changed where my dad would sit at the cricket. And then the other thing is, you know, you alluded to before, I was a leg spinner before Shane Warne. So uh, I think when he made his debut, it was at 91, I think, wasn't it? Um, I would have been 11. So I probably would have been a leg spinner then by, for about two years, right? And the only leg spinners I'd seen was Abdul Qadir and Mushtaq Ahmed and Peter Sleep and, and those sorts of guys. Um, but Mushtaq Ahmed was the one that I was like, great, that's what I mimicked myself on. And of course, six months later, no one in Australia knew what a Mushtaq Ahmed was and everyone was talking about Shane Warne. But for that couple of months, he was huge in Australia because, uh, you know, because there was an actual leg spinner taking wickets. When I reckon my first year of playing leg spin, I was definitely the only leg spinner in my league. Uh, I reckon the second year, there was maybe one other, right? That was 1990, 1991. By 1993, it was very rare not to have a team that had a leg spinner in junior cricket. By 1996, I played my first representative cricket and there were four of us in our squad. And I remember the, not only were there four of us in our squad, I went out to bat and when I went out to bat, there was a leg spinner on at each end. So there was at least six leg spinners in the two squads playing in this, you know, in this um, uh, underage district game. That, it, it was that quick. And that full on for a long, long time. And it all became about how much you could spin the ball. You know, you've seen me bowl. That's not my thing. I'm much more the Mushtaq Ahmed, uh, Anil Kumble mode of not really spinning it that much. Spinning it enough when I have to. But um, And everyone just wanted everyone to rip the ball sideways. And I didn't fit in. But 
you've got three different parts of of the world of my world that have already collided with Shane Warne. And then you've got the fact that Lily Lily retires in what, nineteen eighty four, eighty five. Between then and Shane Warne coming on, Australia didn't have that famous cricketer. Alan Border was a gun. Right, and David Boone was known because of the mustache, and Merv became known because of the mustache, and obviously Billy Birmingham made. I mean, it, I think it tells you a lot that the twelfth man was really more about the commentators than it was the cricketers at that point. Shane Warne becomes a celebrity very, very early on. Right, ninety three to ninety seven, he's famous. Mm, yeah, everyone in Australia <clears throat> knows who he is. So every conversation, you know, oh, what sports do you like, Jared? Oh, you know, I, I play cricket. That's my favorite sport. Shane Warne. I haven't even told them I'm a leg spinner at this stage. Shane Warne. And every conversation that you had at that point really came back to him because he was so big and huge. And, 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 and you know, then you've got that period probably from what, 98 uh, <laughs> till now, where there was just a controversy every, what, six to 12 months. There was just something that happened. You know, had the problems with his charity. You know, mm. he had the the anti smoking, comp, uh, you know, uh, sponsorship that that he that he had problems with. <laughs> he had the many, many, many random affairs. There was a woman coming forward every twelve minutes saying that she'd had an affair with Warney. You know, then he was caught in his underwear. But uh, you know, um, oh, there was the, about that one. Yeah, the, on the front page of the Sun. Then there was the, the drug thing. Then there was the Elizabeth Hurley thing. Then remember, he was on that. He was on that. Um, I'm a celebrity, get me out of here, was it? Or whatever. Yeah, yeah. And he's talking about how we descended from aliens, not from monkeys. <laughs> right? You know what I mean? He had his own chat show, and that was like the biggest thing to talk about that year. And it was like perhaps the worst chat show in the, you know, it made James Corden look like Michael Parkinson, right? Like it was horrendous, that that um, that chat show. And and it was like every, he just never went away because something would happen. Um one thing that I don't think has been talked about very much, and I might have to do something about this because it's really interesting. He basically helped the IPL become the IPL and the Big Bash become the Big Bash. Mm. So the IPL needed a big overseas star to go with the Indian stars. Well, you know, that's about as big as you get. Then he cut, then he backs Moneyball. The man doesn't even like numbers, but suddenly he's talking about <laughs> Moneyball. They win... With a Pakistani as their star, which people have forgotten as well. So Hal Tanvir um, is their star. So huge, huge for IPL. Shane Warne wins the first IPL. Then he's with the Melbourne Stars, and the whole thing's ridiculous. He's on like this other contract with them. He's like ruining the salary cap at his play. But then he does two incredible things. One is he starts a fight with um, with um, Marlon Samuels, yeah. where like it's almost like a physical fight on the on the ground. Yeah. Like, we haven't seen anything like that since what really Lily um, and and uh, Mean Dad. Yeah, like, there really hasn't been that many physical alter. You see bumping. Don't you? you yeah, see, you don't see, you don't see bats being thrown at people. You do not see bats being thrown. <laughs> and then the other thing that he did, I don't know if you remember this, and this might have even been a bigger deal for the uh, for the Big Bash. He's on mic commenta- uh, commentating while he's bowling. Brendan McCullum. And he says he's going to spin the ball around, around Brendan McCullum's legs. Now, John, he does not spin the ball around Brendan McCullum's legs. It's important to know that he bowled a slider. And what happened was that Brendan McCullum walks right across his stumps and misses it anyway. So either 
So I, I think he did admit eventually that it wasn't even the ball that he said, but it didn't matter, right? Because it went viral around the world that Shane yeah. Warne called how he was going to get Brendan McCullum out and did it. It didn't matter that it was completely different delivery because most people don't know anything. Even after all those years, most people really don't know that much about leg spin, right? It just kept happening. Every six months or so, it would happen again and again, and he'd be back in it and... Someone would say something about him online and he'd go off or he'd get, you know, just continued to go on. And he was just, he never could go away. He was no. just always there. But, and a lot of it wasn't, I think he had, he would occasionally come up with like, what would you call them? Almost soft focus Michael Vaughan tweets where I'm not sure how much he really believed it, but he thought he better say something because he hadn't said something on social media. But even then, it was mostly the stuff where he wasn't trying to do anything. Oh my God, Shane Warne's mural. Do you remember when <laughs> Shane Warne's mural <laughs> yeah, went viral? Yeah, because yeah. it is... Look, I can say this Ridiculous. because I'm a bogan stock, the same as Shane Warne. It is the most bogan thing you could ever have in your house in Australia is to have... literally The guy who did it was famous for, for, for doing footy posters, so uh, footy paintings, where like... It would be Carlton's 120th anniversary or something, and he'd go in and he'd do a th- you know a, um, a, a mural of, of the Carlton yeah, players, yeah. you know, and it'd be like st- one of the Carlton players would be standing on a magpie because that was that was their big you know opposition was the magpies, whatever, and you know everyone had have their biceps a little bit more pumped up. Maybe there'd be like a celebrity Carlton fan in the background or something. Do you know what I mean? That's what he <laughs> yeah, did, yeah, yeah. and it was like he's a good artist. I'm not having a go, but it wasn't. It was very much art for middle-aged men to put up in their in in their in their over their pool table, right? Yeah, like, yeah. and not having a go at that because my my no, dad no, still no. got some of that's that cool. stuff, you know, in, in in his house. But that's what it was. And Warren saw all these posters and decided that's the guy who's going to paint my entire wall. And then <laughs> then you, you it's it's so much about Warren. It's famous people he knows. Fine. It's also famous people he didn't really know that well, right? Like. It's just, is, is, it, is Elvis on it? I'm trying to think. It's someone yeah, ridiculous, it's, right? It's kind of like a mixture of, of an Oasis band album cover from the mid-90s. And, uh, yeah, it, oh, I can tell you something really Have you seen that, the Cold, random... Cold War Steve? If you follow him on Twitter. <laughs> it is a bit like, like Cold that. War Steve. Yeah. You know, you wouldn't be surprised if like Alan Brazil suddenly like his face is There's a random St Kilda player called Aaron Hamill. Now, it's important to know that St Kilda had a player called Tony Lockett who... Warney probably would have been... We haven't even talked about the fact he was virtually a professional footballer until he was told he was too slow. But Warne would have played in, at the same time as Tony Lockett. Tony Lockett is, was a god. This big, fat, powerful forward, right? Everyone loved him. That's not who was on Warney's mural, though. It's Aaron Hamill, this weird <laughs> metrosexual footballer who played really hard. Dimi Mascarenas is on the mural. I don't know if you remember that. It's, it's his best mate, isn't it? Yeah, Darren Berry, I think, is on the mural as well. And then it's like, isn't it Bruce Springsteen, Mick Jagger, maybe Elton John, Marilyn, uh, Marilyn Monroe, mate. isn't it? Pamela Anderson, is Pamela Anderson on it as well? I, think, I mate, mean, it's ridiculous. Mate. mate, Mick Jagger tweeted that about how gutted he was that Shane, Shane Warner died. So Mick Jagger needs to be there. Mick Jagger loved it. There's that great story that Crash Craddock wrote in a, in a newspaper the other day where Crash Craddock said to Shane Warne, I heard a rumour that Elton John once said if he could be reborn as anyone else, he'd want to be reborn as you. And then Warne went, yeah, Mick Jagger said that as well. Like, <laughs> I think you have to realise the sort of magnetism that he had. And well, we haven't you know, even hanging mentioned... out with Michael Jordan is not a normal thing for a cricketer to do, but right? We haven't even mentioned the fact that he went over to America a couple of years ago 
and got like Sashin and like Glenn McGrath and like all these cricketers to go and play in front of like 20,000 expat Indians in a baseball stadium. Doesn't he also, talking about America and random things, wasn't he also, what, I, I, you know me, I don't know anything about the royal family. What, the, the woman that everyone, hate, the right wing media hate that's in the royal family now? Um, uh, Sarah Ferguson? No, the, the, the new one. She's married to one of the, the ginger boy. Oh, Meghan. Meghan yeah. Markle? That, yeah, uh, didn't Prince he know Harry. her because he was the he was the celebrity suits <laughs> fan? He used to tweet at like the other actors from Suits all the time, right? Like the the level of like random famous people that he knew. So I said this on I can't remember if it was on Talksport or Sky Sports News, but I was saying about how he was like Nike's first big play into cricket, and there were all these people going, "Well, actually, Ian Botham uh, had a sponsorship with Nike," uh, and I was like, "Yeah," but at that stage, no one knew what Nike was. It wasn't a big thing, and they gave yeah. him a boot to hold on the back of a thing. They didn't take him to Portland, Oregon, to meet Michael Jordan in the Nike factory <laughs> when, and at that stage, Nike was the biggest thing in the world, right? And they were making a play for for Shane Warne. The whole thing is just so ridiculous on layer on layer on layer oh here's another great story russell crowe and i want to get the movies right here but russell crowe had a shoulder injury i always thought this was on gladiator but it might have been cinderella man but there was certainly he had a shoulder injury perhaps on both of those films and he had to get someone to fix his shoulder right he called shane warne (laughs) Of course right? he did. And he <laughs> says to Shane Warne, you had a shoulder injury. Who can we get out here to fix my shoulder? And the bloke they send out is Errol Alcott, who is the Australian physio, who ends up working on a couple of Russell Crowe's films to help him. <laughs> and I, I'm, I'm pretty sure this is true. I'm 95% sure this is true. Watch Gladiator. And in the, in the scenes when Russell Crowe's in the Coliseum, he picks up the dirt and he rubs it on his hands. No way. That is a homage to Shane Warne. Uh, that is one of the biggest movies of all time. And Russell Crowe, and obviously uh, Russell Crowe is involved in cricket in a way that most Hollywood actors aren't. Hugh Jackman, you know, uh, what well, produced a documentary on cricket. But Russell Crowe literally, like, was, you know, related to two test cricketers and one of the, one of the greats as well. Um, but it's like Shane Warne was so important that in one of the biggest movies of all time, there's a Shane Warne moment. It's just, the whole thing's ridiculous. It shouldn't happen. What? Do you know what Shane Warne's favourite tour was? Well, he, he probably said it. it, it was, his favourite tour was depending on who his audience was. But <laughs> I, So I found this, this I, I can't remember why, but I was, I was Googling Brian McMillan. I, I can't As remember why. As we always are. Yeah. Goffey never stops going on about Justin Langer and Brian McMillan. I don't know if you've noticed. I'm sure you have. Anyway, I, I Googled this here. Have you heard the Brian McMillan story? Where he walks in with a gun. I mean, it is ridiculous, right? So he goes, so he's on the field. He's on the field and he's having a bit of a set to with Alan Border, uh, for all people. And this is Shane Warne's first overseas tour, I think. He might have gone to New Zealand, but yeah. No, he would have gone to New Zealand and and Sri Lanka, but it would have been really early on that tour. Really early on. And you know the Aussies and the Saffirs, they've got a kind of a a bond, haven't they? You, You yeah, you, you feel, I don't, well, you can just, just explain it, but it seems like you feel you're cut from the same cloth kind of thing. And, um, yes, yeah, 
So I was watching this thing, and basically, I watched Brian McMillan tell the story on one chat show, and then, you know how YouTube works, suddenly there was Shane Warne telling the same story on another show, like, five or ten years later, or whatever it was. And it's, I mean, imagine it now, right? For those listeners, those listeners who haven't heard the story, essentially, Shane Warne is on one of his first tours, Alan Border's a captain, you know, it's... um, they're in South Africa. It must have been one of the first tours in South Africa since they were readmitted to uh, to sport. Um, and Brian McMillan is having words with Alan Border. <laughs> I mean, two guys, man. I mean, yeah. imagine being Shane Warne. You'll be like, you know, you talk about mentors. Well, just imagine that as a baptism, you know, watching that in action. And then, anyway, it's lunch and they troop off. And Brian McMillan's in his dressing room and then the Aussies are down the corridor in their dressing room. And Brian McMillan manages to convince the security guard to give him his Uzi. <laughs> and it's, it's loaded Uzi. And then he charges down the corridor, kicks in the door of the Aussies' dressing room, and then runs in with this Uzi and pretends that he's going to shoot Alan, Bo- <laughs> Alan Border. And Shane Warne, and like, they're all sitting there like, What? And then Shane Warne, when he's telling, retelling the story, suddenly it goes from an Uzi to a Kalashnikov. And he sits there and he goes, that was the best tour I ever went on. <laughs> oh, <laughs> oh, man. I mean, just, it was such a remarkably weird life from beginning to end. Where yeah. it's... There's... I don't know, like, if, if you were to make the movie. So I remember... So Mark wrote the book with him, right? Yeah. And I can't remember if Mark was asking me before or after, but we were talking about writing uh, and um, um, and we were, we were talking about it. And he, and he was saying, how do you write this book? And I was like, well, you can't. Because if you write it from beginning to end, it's a Churchill book, right? Because yeah. so much happened that it's just going to go on for volumes and volumes. The only way to write it is to be like, it's like you do it like a biopic, like in, in Hollywood, right? Where you just pick like five or different, five or six different scenes. And you tell the entire story throughout, but then you're like missing on about 34 controversies. And about, there's no way to do it properly because too much happened to him. Uh, you know, I mean, put, put it this way. You could make a very good claim. Glenn McGrath was a better bowler than Shane Warne, Right. Glenn McGrath obviously lost his wife quite young. Glenn McGrath was once on the cover, uh, once had a photo of him next to a dead elephant on a on a hunting on a on a safari trip. What else he got on Glenn McGrath? Do you know, do you know what I mean? Came from the country. He lived in a caravan. Um, yeah, that that was he, it. It was he turned. He had a really to, good memory. He would remember every ball. He yeah, couldn't he, bat. He, do you know what I mean? Up. He fell out, he trod on a cricket ball and he turned up to practice with ankle swingers, basically, because he was quite, he was a country type. That was yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. That's it's, it, really, isn't it? You, and now, forget Glenn McGrath, Curtly Ambrose. Again, his mum. His mum and the bell, yeah. The you've bell. got his mum and the bell, you've got the reggae band, you've got the fact he basically. Oh, put reggae on a band, yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah. Put on a character, you know, like now we know he's this fun, loving guy, but we all. We all thought he was the most terrifying fast bowler in the world when we were watching him bowl. Um, and you're just like, again, those are two absolute greats, right? Yeah. Um, Murally, 
Murali's story is almost more about Sri Lanka and him and, you know, uh, and, uh, and the politics around him than him himself, right? Warren yeah. is just like, you could do an early Warren movie, you could do a middle Warren movie, you could do, and you could do a movie on Warren after he retires and it would be captivating, right? Well, well how many biographies has Warren actually got? I, I would hate to know. I, to get, I mean, he, Gideon's he, done one. Gideon's oh, yeah. done one. Nico's done one. Ken Peace has done be, one. Yeah, there's heaps. There must there's be, absolutely there must be, must be ten of them. Yeah. I once gave... He wrote a book once about his top hundred cricketers of all time. And I think I gave it half a star in wisdom. <laughs> I interviewed him off the back of that. That's the first time I ever met him. It was a terrible um, book. Did you read it? But I didn't. I didn't read the book. No. <laughs> it didn't. was absolutely. I remember. Terrible. Was it Steve Wall's not in it or, or something? Was Steve Steve Wall's not in the hundred? And I no. think I think Adam Gilchrist was quite low in it as well. No, that I reckon a... what happened was in the he did his he did his fifty for a newspaper, right? And he left Gilchrist off. I can't remember. You might be right about Steve Wall too. He left Gilchrist off, but he put Darren Berry in at number forty nine or fifty. For those who don't know, Darren Berry was his Victorian wicketkeeper. And don't get me wrong, well, Darren Berry was. He's on the mural. He's, he's in, in the, the mural. Yeah, so that tells you where he is. But Darren Berry was <laughs> to this day. I think the best wicketkeeper that I ever saw live, him and Jack Russell, I think he was more dynamic than Jack Russell, although they were almost as good as each other, just slightly different. Don't get me wrong. Darren Berry was that good. He also was about as good a bat as you are. <laughs> right. And, so, pr- so pretty good then? Yeah, pretty good. Um, <laughs> and and he, so he had him at like 40 or 50. And then obviously he gets his book deal and they're like, yeah, can you, do, can you move to 100, Shane, so we can fit him a few more players in? <laughs> And he just moves Darren Berry back from like 49 to 50, like, to, like further down the list. <laughs> he just wanted his mate on the list. And I've got a feeling that Gilchrist is high 80s. That, I, I mean, yeah. I hated that book so much. But there's no doubt that there's an incredible bias against people he did not like and an incredible bias for people who played at Victoria or Hampshire with him or he was just really close friends with, right? Like, you know, just completely off the books there. <laughs> Can you remember the start of this show before we came to air? We said, how long do you think we'll do? And you said, um, well, it's got to be minimum 20 minutes. And I was like, yeah, it's definitely going to be over 20 minutes. I mean, <coughs> you know, well, we're now an hour and 10. So <laughs> it tells you all you need to know. We should probably start wrapping it up. Yep. Um, I mean, essentially, a lot's been said about Shane Warne. I mean. Stop now. Stop now. Close your eyes. What's the memory? Well, to be honest with you, I've been quite taken by the imagery that a lot of the papers have used, and so that's what comes to my comes to mind. It's him basically holding his hat. Um, I would say that is my memory, but that's why I was really interested to talk to you about it because actually I don't have, and I was I think I was asked something similar yesterday. I don't have one memory mm. because I didn't celebrate Shane Warne as a cricketer because he yeah. was. That's my relationship. Yeah, essentially, yeah. And that's one of the reasons why... Look, mate, if Shane Warne isn't in that Australian side in 2005, you don't get a quarter of a million people on the streets of London. Mm -hmm. You don't have Trafalgar Square filled. You know, you do not have MBEs for that... that, um, Those 12 players that that played in in the series. You know, Shane Warne had to be there. One of the reasons that... When people talk about why was the 2005 Ashes series so momentous, there's a lot of different reasons. And 
you know, the long wait that England had to win. And, and you know, by 2009, when England won it again, everyone was a bit like, well, okay. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? They hadn't, we hadn't had to wait for 18 years. You know, we hadn't had our noses rubbed in it like we had done for 18 years. I mean, you guys stopped having ticker tape parades after what, 89 probably. Um, no, so there's that. <laughs> yeah, I don't know, but you definitely had one. Yeah. I remember watching it. And then, um, and then, of course, it was the fact that it was, I think it was number one versus number two in the world. So, you know, the standard of cricket mm. was high. The two, two good teams, the two, the two best teams in the world. And then, of course, you just had those ridiculous, you know, and Australia won the first test. So, you know, it's always more interesting when a team comes back from behind to win a test series. And then, of course, you had the humour of the, the rain at the Oval. And then you had heroic performances you know, uh, whether it was Freddie or whether it was Warren himself or Ponting or, you know, saving a test. And then you had the, the drama of the McGrath situation and you had all of this stuff. But the main reason was, the main absolute reason was the characters. Hmm. This was a test series that pitted together characters. You know, Kevin Peterson was new to the, to the scene, but he was still, obviously, because he had that stupid hair character and he was... We've just seen him destroy Jason, um, Jason Gillespie. And we've just seen him in, we just seen him go to South Africa and just batter them. And it was just like, what? Freddie Flintoff, of course, an absolute character. And then, of course, Australia, the character. But this kind of like, ro- the thing with Australia is that they had a, a robotic nature to them. They were that good. You know, Hayden, Langer, and Ponting, and McGrath. There was a metronomic, you know, kind of like, they just ground this stuff out. Gilchrist is a little bit different. He, there was something magical about him. But it was Shane Warne. And even in that series, we never beat Shane Warne. We beat mm. Australia, but we didn't beat Shane. And I reckon, actually, if I was to say one memory of Shane Warne, because, of course, that if you were to say the one image from that series, it was Freddie Flintoff with Brett Lee at Edgbaston. But there was a moment... I can't remember what test it was. I think it was when Freddie Flint, Flintoff hit 100 or 80 or something. And, and as he walked off, and Warren finally gets him. And he walks off. And you, the camera, and it's not doesn't mean to, but the camera just captures Shane, who breaks off from celebrating, to just shout out, Freddie! Freddie! And he, Freddie doesn't hear him. Mm. Freddie's just walking off. He goes, Freddie! And Freddie looks round and Shane just claps. And that, I think, I think that's the memory. So. Oh, and we, him buying us a drink. Yeah, definitely him buying us <laughs> a drink. Um, he complained about my drink order too. And he had the most convoluted drink. Oh, no, he had the most disgusting drink. I mean, I was just like, what the hell are you drinking? It was so like Tizer, Bitters, Vodka. And it was a pint of it. And it was like... Mate, how have you got teeth left? Anyway, no, tell me your story. Not a good drink. Um, yeah, so 92, 93, when they're playing the West Indies at Boxing Day, my dad, we didn't have, we, I think my dad had been unemployed for a while. We didn't have any money. So my dad was like, we're going to afford one day of the test. All right. And maybe the tickets were cheaper at the end of the test because he said we can go day four or day five. <laughs> so I don't know That's why. That's when we used to go. Yeah. That's when we used to go so as well. So it must have been cheaper back then, yeah. Mm. And, and I said, well, day four. And he's like, well, wait, wait, wait a minute. You know, we've got this young leg spinners playing in the team, you know. And, you know, day five, you'll see the end of the game. And I said, yeah, but we won't say full, full day's cricket. Day four, mm-hmm. I'll see full day's cricket. 
And he's like, yeah. I'm and he wanted day five, and I said day four. So we went day four, and we saw Damien Martin uh, chip around a 60-odd. Uh, not particularly fluently, um, uh, <laughs> uh, which he obviously could be a beautiful batter. Was it, oh, was yeah. it his best work, Damien Martin? It's, that, not, that, uh, it's not in Rob Moody's collection of like pinged cover drives. No. They were just trying to set up... Uh, Australia were just trying to set up a lead. Um, and... I'm trying to think. I think we probably saw a little bit of Richie Richardson bat too, if, or maybe they declared the next day. I can't remember, but it wasn't. It wasn't. My memories are just Damian Martin miss hitting balls over and over <laughs> again on the, on on this wicket. Anyway, they sent them three fifty nine the next day, um, and so West Indies get to about I think it was one for. Uh, I'm going to do Australian because this, it was in Australia. One for one fifty one, and. Uh, it looks like West Indies are going to chase him. Remember, this is the West Indies, right? They hadn't been dethroned at this point. They would win that series against Australia in Australia, which sounds bizarre now, but that used, you know, that's what the West Indies used to do. And Warren comes on and he bowls this, what looks like a half-tracker and it runs along the ground. And that's what the commentators say, right? That's a half-tracker that runs along the ground. And it's only, I think, Richie Benno might come onto the commentary later when he explains it was the flipper. And... It was so iconic because Richie Richardson was a huge hero of mine and obviously iconic because he had the big maroon floppy hat or wide-brimmed hat, whatever you, whichever country you're from calls it something different. And, you know, the hat stays beautiful as the ball slides straight through him to get him out LBW. No one really knows what's happened. That's the beginning of the Shane Warne story in Test Cricket, right? Like, that's the time. So that's the ball I remember the most, and that's the day I remember the most. Also, because he took seven for that day, and my dad has never forgiven me for not allowing him to be there live. <laughs> uh, but what I, my image, the image I always have, and there's a gif of this that I found randomly. Remember when he would like be at the top of his mark playing with the ball, and he'd be looking mm. around? Sometimes he'd look at the batter, sometimes he'd be looking at the field, sometimes he'd be chatting to another field or whatever it is, but that is what I remember the most. And, and I've been trying to think about why that stood out the most. And I think it's because he was different than great spinners before him, like, you know, Bishop Beatty and, uh, you know, uh, other, you know, great spinners that we, you know, well, we didn't see much of, but even someone like Abdul Qadir, because he was a bit more showman, uh, although Abdul Qadir was pretty showman as well, but not on the same level as Warren. It was almost like there was that pause for the cameras, Mm. right? But also he's working everyone out. But if you think about it, you and I both grew up in an era where Abdul Qadir was the spinner, right? Or you had some poor off-spinner just wheeling stuff at the other end and trying to get through their overs as quickly as possible. Suddenly, everyone else was a seamer and the seamers would go all the way to the end of their mark and then come straight in. They would go all the way there under the mark and come straight in. Suddenly, you had this guy who's like slowing the game down, not just physically, but also like mentally. And the mm. camera was on him longer and I, it's only recently I worked that out, that we probably spent more time watching Shane Warne think, <laughs> right, yeah. than almost anything else, right? Just him at the top of the mark, you know, whether it was the thing or licking his fingers or whatever, you know, or, you know, uh, all the, you know, running his hand through his hair, all those things that we've seen like a million times. It's that kind of image of him surveying his lands that was like the most common thing that you would see of Shane Warne. And that isn't the case if you you know if you think of Malcolm Marshall or Dale Stain or whatever the most common thing of them is running, right? It's running in, you know their gait straight away. You almost know Shane Warne just from standing still, and that's the image for me. He made the game stop 
And that's essentially what he did by being a leg spinner. He stopped the game going in the direction it was, and then it went in the direction that he wanted. And sure, DRS and Murali and Kumble all coming at the same stage helped spin bowling as well. But like, they, they're, all, they're both great. But Shane Warne was something completely different. I mean, Sachin Tendulkar is the most famous cricketer from that era, but he's not the most famous cricketer from that era, right? Not, not by any fault of his own. You can love Sachin Tendulkar and you can follow him and there's no doubt he was more loved by more people. Sachin Tendulkar was just a lovely boy who made a lot of runs. Shane Warne was, he was Cricket's Elvis, right? He was literally Cricket's Elvis. And it was impossible not to be part of that. Well, uh, let's finish it there because I don't think it gets any better. I do, I'm aware though, right at the start, I said to you, I'll tell you the story about the Manchester test and this. Oh, yeah. So <coughs> I haven't got the scorecards in front of me, but from memory, um, England were once again facing an uphill task. Stop me if you've heard this story before. <laughs> England were facing an uphill task to either bat out five sessions or score a ridiculous amount of runs to either save or win a test match. I mean, you know, life has it's, life's changed so much since, since 1993. Anyway, it's approaching the end of day four, and England are just about clinging on, just about clinging on. I think they've lost two wickets, and it's approaching six o'clock, and my mum and dad are calling me in for dinner next door. And, you know, by this point, remember... I'd already had the best part of eight years of misery, not just against Australia. England lost against everybody. Mm. So it wasn't just an Australian thing. And also the Ashes were not the all, they were important, but known, there was an inequality about my love of cricket. Okay, I'd just watch it during the summer because it was on BBC and you'd basically just watch England, whoever they were watching. But, it, you know, every summer, it was just terrible. It was just awful. Anyway, Aussies are here. It's Old Trafford. And England are, t- are two down. And if they can just get through this last over, I can go and have dinner because I'm being called at. And I can at least dream. At least I can have that night where I can just dream of another great escape. Mm. And Merv Hughes is bowling that final over. And my dad's calling me in. And I'm like, yeah, 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 I'll be in, I'll be in in a second. And the first ball of the over's negotiated. Second ball of the over's negotiated. Come on, John, John, come and have your dinner. Come and have your dinner. You've got to come in now. And I'm like, yeah, 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 I've got, I, let's, let me watch, just let me watch his last over. And I'm like, you know when you're like half in the door? Yeah. You know, I've got to leave. And I'm like, and then Murphy's bowls the next, the next ball. And I'm like, I'm not like, just three balls, just three balls, just let me watch three balls. And then they're calling me and I'm going to get in trouble. And then Murphy's bowls the penultimate ball and it's okay. And then I'm like, no, just one ball, one more ball. I just need to watch this last ball. And then Murphy's comes in and no bloody surprise whatsoever. He bowls Mike Gatting off his pads. And I just, that was it. I just, I, I just given up. I've given up this stupid bloody sport. And I just stormed off and I gave up. I gave up cricket for, I don't know how long, but I don't think it was probably about two tests. And that was about, that, that is what I remember about the ball of the century. But I don't remember ball of the century. So let's just, we'll finish on the ball of the century, right? So yeah. 
we we know what happens when we watch it now. So when I was writing my book, I really wanted to go back and watch the whole clip. And I don't know if it was Ru Belinda or someone else, but someone had put up the whole build-up of it. And it's just a bowler coming on for an over, right? Like, I know he'd taken... I'm trying to think, was it New Zealand he'd taken some wickets against? Or South Africa? Obviously, there was those Sri Lankan wickets in the West Indies. But there was no reason to fear a leg spinner in England on day one of a test match, even if you were worried about him. And there was some hype about him, but not not massive. Like, Graham Hickett smashed him everywhere in that warm-up game, right? And so you you go back and you watch it now, and then you think... And I remember pausing it once when I was watching it, and the ball was like, as it comes out of his hand, so there's the normal drift that that ball gets, and then it just veers off violently at the end, right? Which is something we never really saw that much with, with spinners at that point. And there's a point, if you pause it just before it gets there, where Mike Gatting's in the right position to play this ball, the crowd's just watching a normal ball, and you have absolutely no idea that for 14 years he's going to de- define this series, right? And like in some ways he defined it. cricket, even when he wasn't, even when Sachin was a bigger name, even when Freddie had his moment. He, you know, there were plenty of incredible things happened in cricket, but Warren kind of defines it. And you just like, if you stop it before then, it's just nothing. And it's so weird to think how. It was such a big explosion. And even him taking wickets in against the other teams was a very, very big deal. But when he took them in England, it was like, oh, maybe there's no way to actually stop this. This is a force and everything has changed. And to think from that moment that one person can define almost two countries' relationships with each other for a long period of time. It's, it's it's a remarkable thing to be able to do. And look, chances are we're going to lose national cricket, right? It's going to go towards franchise cricket. We'll still have international games, but they won't be what they are, what they were, you know, for 150 years. And we won't have that sort of relationship with someone like Shane Moore. You have a look at AB de Villiers and all these Indian fanboys who absolutely love him, right? That's because he's almost an Indian because he plays for their team, right? Mm-hmm. Shane Warne is like, he really did was a defining bridge between Australia and England on and off the field for a very long time. And no one saw that coming. No one saw a leg spinner coming. No one saw, no one thought that the biggest star in cricket was ever going to be a spinner. Right. Lance Gibbs had the most wickets in test cricket and Lance Gibbs could walk past 99.9% of cricket fans and no one's even turning around to see who Lance Gibbs is, right? And Shane Warne was completely different than that. And there is that moment of time when you think back to it now, we look at it. It's like, have you ever seen the film Alien? When, uh, when, when he's in the shoots um, he's and he's going around for about 10 minutes, right? Mm. If you watch that when you know what the film Alien is about, it's like... Oh my God, this is the scariest thing you've ever seen. But I talked to a friend yeah. who saw Alien the first time it came out. They didn't know what Alien was. Like, they didn't really understand the horror element of it. They're just watching it and going, this, this thing goes, oh my God. And, <laughs> and you think back, I had that moment and I've forgotten it because now he's colored everything that has happened ever since. Right? Shane Warne colored every single moment of that relationship ever since. And until that ball pitches, None of that happens, and we didn't know. And I, I find the whole thing just completely remarkable. I I can't separate Shane Warne from cricket. 
and that's you know although and I never thought about it until yesterday but yeah mate we're done thanks for coming on my podcast thanks for coming on my podcast The following on podcast is proudly sponsored by Barbados Tourism. And this is your gentle reminder that Barbados is the best place to be a cricket fan. With eight matches from the ICC Men's T20 Cricket World Cup Series taking place in Barbados this summer, including the final, you can experience the summer of a lifetime by booking today. Aside from immersing in world-class cricket in the sunshine, Barbados is the dream destination for all travel enthusiasts. It is where adventure meets paradise, the culinary capital of the Caribbean, and better still, the birthplace of rum. If you are keen to unite with cricket fans across the globe for what is set to be an unforgettable summer, then head to visitbarbados.org forward slash cricket today. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.